0: more of these left this semester really it's true i thought you'd be excited that means the semester's almost over i'm flattered actually that you're disappointed there's only four left um this semester we've been talking about jesus conversations and we've been eavesdropping in on them um And I think they've been fascinating, surprising, and shocking at times. Uh, A little unsettling and often subversive. And I think that's pretty awesome. It's one of the reasons I chose to do this. But as we moved along this semester, I realized that the last three or four texts that uh, I've chosen to talk about all have one thing in common. Uh, They sort of look at the underside of life. And uh, I decided, let's just talk about it. So over the next three weeks, we're going to talk about, in order, cynicism despair and uh, what's the other sad one? Uh, Doubt. Oh yeah, cynicism, despair, and doubt. And uh, I I wouldn't consider these to be lectures and they won't be downers. Uh, We're we're doing this because frankly they're in the Bible and frankly they're part of life. And uh, we all go through periods of these things. And uh, in order to really deal honestly with life and what the scripture says, we deal with these topics as well. And uh, tonight's story we're going to encounter not a cynical person. But an occasion, an opportunity for great cynicism. And uh, we're going to see this individual come out the other side, incredibly hopeful. And we're going to ask ourselves along the way how is this possible? So, our text is in Matthew 15. It's a pretty short account, verses 21 to 28. You're free to follow along up there or in your own Bible as I read. Jesus went away from there and withdrew to the district of Tyre and Sidon. And behold, a Canaanite woman from that region came out and was crying. Have mercy on me, O Lord, son of David, my daughter is severely oppressed by a demon. But he did not answer her a word. And his disciples came and begged him, saying, Send her away, she's crying out after us. And he answered, I was sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. But she came, and she knelt before him, saying, Lord, help me. And he answered, It's not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. She said, Yes, Lord, yet even the dogs eat the crumbs that fall from their master's table. And Jesus answered her, O woman, great is your faith. Be it done for you as you desire. And her daughter was healed instantly. All right, I'm going to pray. You're free to join me. Our great Father, we thank you for your word. And we pray that as we gather, you would be gracious to open our minds and soften our hearts. Uh, help us to think rightly and help us to see you, Lord Jesus. We pray that you would uh, deepen the faith of those that are gathered. And for those that come uh, not embracing Christianity, not understanding it, or deeply skeptical or cynical, we pray that you'd be gracious to show yourself. these things in your name, Lord Jesus. Amen. I'm going to read uh, a lyrics from a song by Ben Folds. The song's called Picture Window. It's a, it's a bit of a downer. Just a warning. Uh, they checked into the hospital New Year's Eve. Nothing to be done about that. Rainbows, daffodils. She's not naive. Symbolism's all crap. There's a big picture window in their room. On the ward with a view of a Parliament Hill. But the view offers more joy than they can afford when there's this much pain to kill. You know what hope is? Hope is a bastard. Hope's a liar. It's a cheat and a tease. Hope comes near you, kick its backside. It's got no place in days like these. Pretty powerful. You have a picture here of someone very sick, taken to the hospital, and they're threatened by hope. Wherever they see hope in the song, they consider it threat. Why is that? Because in the midst of despair and suffering, hope offers a chance, but it offers also greater disappointment and pain. And uh, I use this illustration to start because we live in a culture. Currently, where well, the intellectual flavor of the day is cynicism. It's an intellectual posture that seems to make us intelligent. It basically says, I see through everything, you can't surprise me. Uh, it's the opposite of sort of innocent naivete. It's also, I think, a means of self-preservation. No one's going to fool me, no one's going to hurt me. And uh, it's interesting that we managed... Basically, all to be this way, somewhat cynical, while at the same time being optimistic. Other cultures were cynical; they swallow the pill whole, and they embrace the nihilism and apathy that would come with this worldview. In America, we really managed to be positive while thinking there's no really reason to be positive, and so we sort of live it up, eat, drink, and be merry. For tomorrow we die. Dave Matthews nails us. That's who, that's who we are as a culture. There's really no reason to be all that excited about anything. I see through everything. Nothing can surprise me. Eat, drink, and marry. Tomorrow we die. And that's what we are often. We're very optimistic about what or why. Well, uh, I think this is all very interesting philosophically, culturally, but really I want to boil it down to a very personal, ground level, your life point of view. What do you do when, like, Ben Folds or the woman in our story... Uh, you're immersed in suffering? Or someone you love is suffering? Do you have hope? Do you have real hope? Or someone else is suffering, can you offer them hope? In your cynicism, can you offer them real, substantial hope? And that's not just a theoretical question. That's a real-life question. The, The real question is, how do we live our lives In a broken world, where things aren't the way they're supposed to be, without being or becoming a hardened cynic. Really, I mean, uh, y'all know I can be a hardened cynic, so let me make it clear. At some point, we'll all get sick and die. Alright, so there you go. That's a hardened cynic. So, this is true. And if I I embrace that line, how do I really offer substantial hope to people? Uh, At the same time, uh, how do we live in a broken world, everyone's going to get sick and die, with real hope, with real hope that doesn't seem like nonsense or foolishness or naivete. How do we do that? And I think we're going to look at our text tonight and come to a couple conclusions. Cynicism, skepticism is plausible. It sort of makes sense because the reality we live in is broken. Things aren't the way they're supposed to be. But hope is possible because Jesus is at work. So we're going to see in our text tonight. So we're going to look at reasons for cynicism, and then reasons for faith. And uh, I'm excited about this. So this text, is, it gives people trouble. As I read it, some of you are probably troubled. This doesn't seem like the Jesus I know. Um, and really, this is not a text about cynicism. But it describes an opportunity where all the ingredients are there for someone to be Cynical. So first, uh, despair. This woman, verse 22, she comes to Jesus uh, crying out, have mercy on me. My daughter is severely oppressed by a demon. Now, uh, all kinds of different people in the room, and some of you are thinking, like, this is crazy. There's no such thing as demons. Set that aside for a moment. I do happen to think there's such things. But um, set that aside for a moment and just recognize and admit, this is a woman who suffered greatly. Okay? She's probably gone to every expert she can possibly find. She's tried everything. And she's probably cried out to God over and over to do something. And she has walked day after day with her daughter whom she loves. Her daughter's greatly suffering. She's greatly suffering. That's the way it works. If your kid's suffering, you're suffering. That's called despair. When you can't do anyone for the person you love who's suffering, the result is often Despair. The recipe is there for her to despair. How does she still have hope? And uh, there's the other instance, the other issue of distance. Um, she has likely cried out to God and nothing has happened. Up till now, nothing has happened. And perhaps she's heard of this person, Jesus, but uh, she lives in Canaan, Tyre, and Sidon. He lives hundreds of miles away, at least 50 miles to Galilee, more if he's in Jerusalem. And uh, What hope is there that he will actually come here? Almost none. Almost none. And then, miraculously, he does show up. He does show up. The distance is spanned. But when he does come, what happens? She approaches him and asks him to heal her daughter. And Jesus says nothing. The same exact silence she's gotten... Every time she's asked God to intervene, it's the same time she experiences now. The great distance. Is there a God at work? Is there a God that hears me? Is there anyone here that will help me? Can anyone span this distance? And then there's the disappointment. And uh, I think there's all kinds of room for disappointment in this text. Some of us would have given up well before this woman even got started. Uh, I'm not going to bother him. I give up. Uh, she doesn't give up. But all kinds of opportunity for disappointment, for her having her hopes disintegrated. She comes out in hope and in desperation. In verse 22, she's crying out. The, the word means she's crying out repeatedly and loudly. She's desperate. Um, and when she asks for help, Jesus says nothing. Okay, Some of you would pack up and go home, disappointed. And then the people, his disciples, that you would hope would maybe argue for you or bring you into him, they actually go to Jesus and say, could you please get rid of her? Could you please send her away? Uh, I think that's grounds for disappointment. And, And then you approach Jesus and you kneel down and you ask for mercy. And Jesus gives these enigmatic statements that sound like a no. And there's grounds for disappointment. I mean, how would you not be disappointed, right? And you put these things together, the despair of suffering, the distance, will God answer me, is there anyone here that hears me and will help me, and then the disappointment. And I think you have the recipe for cynicism. Uh, Dick Kyes, who's a great Christian thinker, some of you recently wrote one of his articles on cynicism, he said the recipe for cynicism today is meaninglessness plus disappointment equals sort of apathy, and apathy sort of factors in as well. But if there's meaninglessness because there's no God that listens and no purpose and no end and no story, things just happen. The American phrase for this, this is the way we do it in America. Seriously. When I said we're cynical, nihilistic, and positive, I think this is the best phrase for it. It is what it is. Like, coming from a real nihilist, that would be like, it is what it is. We somehow mean that positively. But it still means that there's no purpose, no reason, nothing underneath. And uh, that's what we often think. There's no reason why these things happen. It's just the way it is. You take that and you factor it in with all the disappointments you've had in your life. Parents who divorced or didn't love you like you should. A father you can never actually seem to get his love from. um, Friends that let you down. Opportunities and dreams closing the doors on you. Institutions like church letting you down or even mistreating you. You factor up up all those disappointments. And you begin to wonder, is there any reason to even care anymore? And then apathy is what comes out of that. Well, this woman could have easily ended up this way, and she didn't. Um, But I want to talk real quick about what you do when it does start to go this way. When the disappointment and the despair and the distance all add up and someone's struggling or you're struggling. And uh, I think one of the most important things you can do is listen, is listen. Not try and uh, fix it right away, um, but listen. Uh, when I was in college, I actually made one of my professors cry, uh, it was a very vulnerable moment in class. It was a social work class, so we talked about feelings all the time. Um, but he shared how uh, all these things in his life that were very personal and painful were happening. His parents were dying. His daughter, whom he loved, was distancing herself from him, and uh, and he was crying. And no one was saying anything. And I, uh, being an idiot, decided to say something. And I tried to fix it. I mean, I tried. I tried to. I tried to help a deep heart wound with like a nice little happy band aid. I made it worse. I made it much, much worse. As soon as it came out of my mouth, I felt terrible. And I felt terrible about it for years and years. I finally wrote him a letter and apologized. Um, we failed to listen. And instead of shooting rainbows and sunshine at people that are in despair and, point, and, and hurting, we need to listen. Uh, Winston Churchill, who was one of the best speakers of the 20th century, realized that no one actually listened to what he said. And also, on one occasion at a formal party, he decided, I'm just going to say ridiculous stuff and see if anyone says anything. So everyone, and these like dignitaries and ambassadors, as they shook his hand leaving, he leaned over and said, I killed my grandmother. I killed my grandmother. And everyone's like, good job. That's great. Wonderful. Have a great day. You know, this, it was just a matter of fact, they did not even listen, ex- except that it's one ambassador from Bolivia who leaned in and said, I'm sure she deserved it. Uh, <laughs> But for the most part, it shows that no one listens. We don't listen. And uh, it's hard to listen to those that are suffering because we don't want to enter into their suffering. It hurts us, and we don't know what to say or do. And it's even harder to listen to the cynical. But you have to listen. And I think if you listen carefully, sometimes you'll hear a story that makes sense or you'll hear about some past disappointment that they need to get out that they've never shared with anyone. And maybe they'll give you the reason why they're this way. And perhaps if this is you that I'm describing, cynical, disappointed, despairing, well, I want you to know that there may be very good reasons why you're that way. Life's not the way it's supposed to be. There's brokenness in this world. But you don't have to keep it to yourself. And you don't have to be bitter. And you don't have to be cynical. You can look at the brokenness of this world realistically and still be hopeful. And you that know me pretty well, you think I'm pretty cynical... But I'm not. I really am hopeful. And I think I look at real, reality pretty openly and realistically. And I would love to talk to you about your cynicism. I really would. Uh, both personally and philosophically. And, and, and get to know your story and listen to you. Well, this woman does that. She's walking through the valley of the shadow of death and uh, has every reason to be cynical. But instead, Jesus describes her faith as great. Verse 28. Or even terrific would be a translation. She has terrific faith. And given her circumstances, you might wonder, like, is this at all reasonable? Rational? Uh, Is she a fanatic? What is this? How, How does she have this kind of wherewithal to just keep on coming? And what we see in this text is there are reasons for her faith. And reasons for us to have faith as well. And they all have to do with Jesus. Um... The first is his person. There's a bunch of stuff here. The alliteration just fell out naturally this week. Lots of D's and P's. So I'll give it to you now. His person, his power, his presence, his patience, his purpose, his passion. Alliteration is my spiritual gift. The, um, and no one appreciates it. Um, so the first is his, his person. And somehow this woman knows about him. Uh, knows a lot about him. Well, yeah, a lot, but enough. She calls him Lord, Son of David. And that phrase, Son of David, means, I know you're the promised one from the Old Testament. You're the king that's supposed to come, that was promised was going to fix everything. And I doubt, I really don't know how much she knows. She really is the ultimate outsider. She's a, Jesus is an enemy territory. These Canaanites are people that hated Israel and persecuted them, um, it's remarkable that she knows anything about him, but she knows about him enough to know that you're the great king that's supposed to come and fix things, and I know you can help, and I know you should be gracious. She says, Lord, be merciful to me. Have mercy. You're, you're a great king. You're supposed to be gracious and merciful. And uh, she knows that he's a king that has power. In verse 28 to 5, she says, Lord, I know you can help. Help me. You have the power to help. And she's right. In verse 28, when Jesus finally does get around to acquiescing, uh, he heals her with a word or two. tremendous power that he exhibits in healing her. So, those are reasons to, to believe his person and his power. But perhaps the most important, one of the most important things about this text is his presence that he's there at all. Uh, again, Tyre and Sidon, where Jesus is, this region. It's enemy territory. It's 30 or 50 miles away from where he normally hangs out. There is absolutely no reason for him to be here. He's not out in left field. He's left the stadium. And he never does this anywhere else in the Bible. He, his conversation later, all these enigmatic answers, they're, they're almost him saying, I'm not supposed to be here, I'm not supposed to be here, I'm not supposed to be here. But he is there. And uh, when she comes and starts begging, and the disciples beg to send her away, Jesus doesn't say anything. He gives enigmatic answers that seem like no, but he does not send her away. He never sends her away. She is there, and he is there, and she just keeps coming closer and closer. And that shows us Jesus' patience. She's crying out, she's loud, she's aggressive. She knows Jesus can heal him. He'll, uh, her daughter. And uh, she's persistent. And Jesus doesn't, I'm going to say this, this is going to trouble some of you. I don't think Jesus knows what to do in this instance. That's what's so hard for him. I'll explain why in a minute. I don't think he knows what to do in the situation. And he's still patient with her while he's figuring it out. He's patient with her loud, desperate insistency. And uh, he's patient because of his purpose it's really tied up with his purpose here and this is where we get to the real rub of what's going on here this text troubles a lot of people because of what jesus is doing he doesn't heal her right away and then he puts her off he's silent and he says things that seem insulting uh what you need to know is that this whole situation i think is very troubling to jesus the whole situation is troubling to him and it has to do with his purpose uh the dilemma for him is very simple I have this woman in front of me in need, and I love people, and this is what I do. But I have a mission, and these things do not square with one another. And uh, he says in verse 24, to someone, it's not clear, he's actually speaking to her, I was sent only to the lost sheep of Israel. Uh, The disciples are trying to send her away. Maybe he's responding to the disciples. Maybe he's speaking to her. I think it's quite possible he's talking to himself. He's processing Please heal me. I was sent only to the lost sheep of Israel. He's trying to figure out what he's supposed to do. Jesus' mission, quite simply, was to bring the good news to the people of Israel and be a blessing to them so they would be a blessing to the world. That was the plan. That was the promise all the way from the beginning of the Bible, all the way through the Bible, until now. And uh, that's pretty much what he's done. He's done. And he heals Gentiles, outsiders like this woman in Israel. They come to him, he'll heal them. But this is different. He is in their territory. And the, the question in his mind is, if I heal her here now, what is going to happen? Because what happens in other places is thousands of people start bringing their sick aunts to my house. And I have to, I have to heal them all. And if I do that here, it could jeopardize everything. It could jeopardize everything. Uh, There's this this, this trope, this thing that happens in hero stories, superhero movies. It's called the friend or idol decision. You've seen this a gazillion times. The hero's in this dilemma. Save your friend who's trapped or about to die or go do this thing or get this thing that you really want. Maybe it's uh, part of your quest that you have to achieve or something that you personally need to get out of this terrible situation. Um... And uh, if you're James Bond, what you do is you shoot your friend, pretty much. You're supposed to love this woman. Bam, she's dead. Don't have to worry about it anymore. And you go on. But uh, that's actually what pretty much happens. Um, But other heroes, they almost always give up their quest or compromise their mission to save their friend. Uh, Here, it's not a quest or an idol. It is the sole purpose why Jesus came. His whole mission His plan to redeem the world. The promise has been that he would come as a great conqueror and bring redemption to his people and be a blessing to them and they would be a blessing to the world. And this is what happens in the book of Acts. It's what happened since then. But healing her right now might jeopardize every bit of that. Loving her is healing her. Loving her and all the Gentiles is not healing her. Because if I I heal her, I might lose everything. The whole mission. Do you see the dilemma he's in? Do you understand it? It's real. Yeah. Well, um, Jesus says in verse 26, it's not right. It's not right for me to give to you, whom he calls a dog. I'll address that in a second. The bread that belongs to the children. And what he's saying is, listen, I've only got so much to give. At this point, he's probably got a year. A year of his life. A year of his ministry. To fulfill his mission. I've only got so much to give. And I have to give it to them first. It's a matter of precedence. They're first. That's the plan. They're first. And I only have so much to give. And this is a household analogy. She's unoffended by it. In fact, she says, Oh, I'm a dog? And the word here is special. It's a little dog. It's a house dog. Oh, I'm in the house. That's great. Most Jews wouldn't even think I'm in the house. I'm in the house? Well, in that case, I'll just take your scraps. Uh, she's very bright. Not only bright, she is very faithful. And she'll take it. I get to be in the house. That's all I want. I'll take whatever scraps you have left. Jesus, you have the right to do your mission and your precedence. I'll just take your scraps. Just give me your scraps. And Jesus hears her great faith and rejoices. This is where we see his passion. Verse 28 Oh woman, this is Jesus passionately, joyfully, really, joyfully, uh, rejoicing in her faith. He goes from very hesitant to astounded and joyful. and her faith, he's delighting in her. He commends her and he heals her daughter. But there's another part of his passion as well and it's not just this Emotional passion. It's the passion of the cross. That's the word that we use to describe what Jesus does in his work of death. That's called the passion. And that's in play here, too. We don't see it from here, but that's where he's heading. And it, it's a really important thing for us to consider as we think about reasons to trust Jesus. This is These are all reasons to trust Jesus. His person, his power, his presence, his patience, his purpose. And lastly, his passion. Because Jesus isn't just someone that is around suffering people. He's not just someone that enters into their suffering. He does more than that. Uh, This quote is from a guy named Nicholas Walterstorff. He's a professor at Yale. He's brilliant. And uh, he's written lots of stuff. But perhaps his most powerful book is called "Lament for a Son. Uh, Meaning he lost his son. He writes this profound, deep book on sadness and grief. And in the midst of the book, he writes this. God is not only the God of the sufferers, but he's the God who suffers. The pain and fallenness of humanity have entered into his heart. Through the prism of my own tears, I have seen a suffering God. And great mystery is this, to redeem our brokenness, the God who suffers with us did not strike some mighty blow of power. Instead, he sent his beloved son to suffer like us. Through his suffering to redeem us from suffering and evil. This is it right here. Instead of explaining away our suffering, God shares it. That's what you have in the work of Jesus. You have someone who not only understands our suffering because he walked here with us in a broken world. But ultimately, in the cross, he suffers for us. He suffers for us. So, in a world that's broken, in a culture that's saturated with cynicism... Well, you've got lots of reasons to be cynical. What reasons do you have to hope? Jesus, who's real, powerful, loving, present, knows your suffering, and suffers for you. He suffers for you. He suffered on the cross for you. Uh, That is love that you can trust. And when you know that, when you know that he has you and cares for you, you can rest you can trust in him. All right, let's pray together. Lord Jesus, uh, we thank you for a text like this. It's a, uh, it's a strange text to many people. It's one of the more troubling ones in the Bible. And, uh,